2: The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in 5,
0: 4, 3.
2: In 1985, one of the most significant composers in film music emerged out of a rock band with a very unique and exciting sound. This is The Soundtrack Show. It all started with Pee Wee Herman. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is all about the early film music of one of the most talented and inspiring composers to emerge from the 1980s. A composer that went on to make his permanent mark on pop culture and is still creating wonderful film scores to this day. His name, of course, is Danny Elfman, and his story is as fascinating as his music. Part avant-garde theater performer, part rock star, part songwriter, part film composer, a multi-instrumentalist and incredible singer, and he was completely self-taught. His career as a film composer skyrocketed in just a few short years in the 1980s, and produced one of the most significant composer-director collaborations in American film history. I am, of course, speaking of his work with writer-director-animator Tim Burton, and we're going to take a close look at their early films together, as well as the origins of Elfman's rock band Oingo Boingo, whose music reached millions of people and also appeared in various films throughout the 80s. And even beyond Tim Burton and Boingo, Elfman has written scores for Spider-Man, Men in Black, The Hulk, The Avengers, the Fifty Shades series, Goodwill Hunting, Justice League, and over a hundred other movies. But it all started with Pee-wee Herman. That's right, it was actor Paul Rubens who brought Tim Burton and Danny Elfman together in 1985, with Burton asking Elfman to consider writing the score for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But more on that later. Let's start at the beginning. Born in 1953 in Los Angeles, Danny Elfman grew up in the South L.A. neighborhood of Baldwin Hills, where he spent a lot of time going to the movies with his friends. It was there that he fell in love with film music, particularly the music of Bernard Herrmann, Nicholas Rosa, Franz Waxman, Max Steiner, and Nino Rota, among others. I was really
1: inspired by film scoring at about the age 11 or 12 by Bernard Herrmann and was a huge fan of his. Steiner, Waxman, Korngold, Rocha, those are the names that I began to learn about and, and understand and appreciate over my teenage years and as a young, a young man in my early 20s. They, uh, they were my music teachers, I suppose. I mean, Bernard Herman was my master.
2: Elfman also used to hang out with the band kids, and he had a real knack for music. According to his older brother, Richard Elfman, Danny could just listen to an intricate Django Reinhardt guitar solo and then figure it out and play it, and then figure out the intricate Stefan Grappelli violin accompaniment. When older brother Richard moved from California to Paris, France in 1970 in order to join Le Grand Magic Circus, young Danny, still a teenager and having dropped out of high school, followed him and joined the group. Playing violin in the circus. After touring with him all summer, Danny decided to embark on a tour of Africa for a year, foraging his musical way from West Africa across the continent to East Africa. While he was there, he spent his time playing violin in the streets and collecting various pieces of African percussion that he was interested in. During this time, older brother Richard moved back home to Los Angeles and he started a theatrical musical troupe called, you ready for this? The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, a troupe that was very similar to Spike Jones or Frank Zappa and which played together in Los Angeles all throughout the 1970s. Eventually, Danny Elfman returned from Africa and became the musical director of the troupe. Here's another quote from Richard Elfman, quote, Danny returned from Africa and I installed him as our musical director. My guiding musical vision for the group was nothing contemporary. We faithfully recreated great music that audiences could no longer hear live anymore. Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Django Reinhardt, Josephine Baker, and did totally original, off-the-wall compositions by Danny, including numbers using an array of percussion instruments that he and saxophonist Leon Schneiderman created for the group. I want to play a clip or two from the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, but before I do, I have to describe just some of the visuals of this group. First of all, many are in clown makeup, outlandish circus costumes, sometimes using absurd props like a gaseous rocket ship that sputters in time with the music, or a giant dragon, both of which were present when the group appeared on the gong show, by the way, and won and they're surrounded by instruments. Danny Elfman can be seen playing percussion, saxophone, piano, and other instruments, as well as singing and being the band leader. The visuals of seeing the Mystic Knights must have left quite an impression, and from what I can gather, it was a mixture of 1970s underground counterculture totally fueled by the musical stylings of the past. Richard Elfman describes the group like this, quote, The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo was an eclectic musical theater troupe. We performed in garish makeup. A typical show would contain music ranging from the 1890s to the 1950s, in addition to Danny's ethnic-slash-avant-garde material. This version of the band employed as many as 15 musicians and dancers playing over 30 instruments, end quote. One other thing. As I play this material... Try to keep Elfman's music for early Tim Burton films in your mind as you listen.
1: Of night when we delight in turning in but please remember it's not goodbye but just until we meet again until this evening I sat there dreaming now I see you so clearly and
2: all my dreams come true as I sing to you,
0: la, 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 Wow. I say it's been a pleasure. I think we hope that you've enjoyed our little treasure of melodies. <laughs> well, when well, we play together, together, we often screech and squeal,
1: but we try to play in harmony. la It requires lots of pep and odd abilities. Oh, also must I tell you, the Oingo Boingos are not clowns to basement. So that's your trick, I see. And with appreciation, <laughs> and hope that you will soon become a member of our fraternity. turn green and so my friends before you leave we'd like to say goodbye
2: and hope that you've enjoyed a piece of wrangle pie some people call us crazy but as you can plainly see we're not the least way crazy we're as normal While the Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo never really released albums, their live show was quite popular in Los Angeles in the 70s, playing at clubs and oftentimes theaters before a movie would start. Online I actually found a few accounts of members of the audience who saw the Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo back in the 70s and listened to the scenes that they describe. Here's one, quote, Back in the mid-70s I lived in LA, San Fernando Valley. Every Sunday afternoon, I would drive down to Culver City to dine at Tito's Tacos. Then I would head up to the Venice Fox Theater to catch whatever movies were playing. And most of the time, the Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo would open for the movies. One of the most perfect Sunday afternoons was Tito's, the Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo, and Pink Flamingos, which is a John Waters film. Life does not get any more surreal than that. I was fortunate to see them live many times. Here's another one. Quote, Back in the mid-70s, I lived in Huntington Beach, California. There used to be a small venue music theater on PCH, which is the Pacific Coast Highway, in downtown Huntington Beach called the Golden Bear. From time to time, they would feature the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Danny Elfman was the fire breather in the act, and he would stand in the median of the divided road, the Pacific Coast Highway, and do his flame breathing as cars passed by, end quote. That's right, I've actually read several accounts that says that Danny Elfman knew how to be a fire breather and would do it in the middle of the freeway, in order to promote the show. That's amazing. Now, around 1979, the group has been going for several years at this point. Older brother Richard Elfman, who started the group, decided to leave the band to pursue filmmaking. And he left the leadership of the Mystic Knights to his younger brother Danny, who was already the music director. But Richard did enlist the band for his feature film directorial debut. The result is a cult film called The Forbidden Zone, with honestly some objectionable content. But it's significant because it is technically the first time Danny Elfman ever wrote a film score. Now, around this same time, Danny Elfman also decided to change the band for a couple of reasons. One, He's mentioned that the amount of gear that they were having to haul around at that time between various instruments and costumes, not to mention personnel, practically required a semi truck. He wanted a more pared down version of the band moving forward. Reason number two, he became interested in a style of music called ska with the emergence of bands like Madness and XTC. Ultimately, he shortened the name of the band to just simply Oingo Boingo, an eight piece band consisting of guitar bass, drums, keys, vocals, and a three-piece horn section. After creating an EP, they quickly got a record deal, and their early music was ferocious.
0: He can't behave. Society's made him go astray. Perhaps if we nice, he'll go away. Perhaps he'll go away. He'll go away.
2: a few great albums in the early 80s. But in 1985, everything changed. For Oingo Boingo, and for future film composer Danny Elfman, the movie business came a-calling. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the Soundtrack Show. How did the Mystic Knights, and later Oingo Boingo, leave its mark on Danny Elfman's film music? That's the question we're trying to get to here. Particularly, how did it contribute to the sound of the famous Tim Burton-Danny Elfman collaborations? Let's quickly examine how these two creatives came together and dive into their first film, Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, from 1985. Actor Paul Rubens was studying with an improv company here in LA called The Groundlings, which is still an improv show and a school on Melrose Avenue. Still exists today. Yours truly actually studied there for a couple of years back in 2012 and 2013. I, you know, did the classes and I joined an improv team and I did Improv Olympics and Second City West and blah, blah, blah. And I can tell you that what I saw was really fascinating. I mean, that place really is a breeding ground for all kinds of careers in entertainment. In fact, The Groundlings has been regularly contributing members to the cast of Saturday Night Live over the years, as well as writers and performers all over the industry. Anyway, in the late 1970s, Paul Rubens was one of those Groundlings, and at the time he was inventing and creating multiple characters, including a wannabe comedian named Pee Wee Herman. After almost having the chance to join the cast of SNL in 1980, along with Eddie Murphy, But being cut at the very last minute, Rubens poured all of his efforts into that Pee-wee Herman character and even produced a successful live show which eventually led to a special on HBO. This special caught the attention of executives at Warner Brothers Pictures who gave him a deal to write a film based on the Pee-wee Herman character. When Rubens was considering who would direct this movie, his friend, actress Shelley Duvall, Recommended a young, talented animator who had just written and directed a couple of shorts for Disney named Tim Burton. She had also worked with him on one of those shorts, which was called Frankenweenie in
0: 1984. I think Sparky looks cute. He's not cute, he's handsome. Anybody want any chocolate chip cookies? Come, here. Come on, Sparky. Come, here. Come on, you get it.
2: Rubens, who had already seen Vincent, his other short, watched Frankenweenie and, and immediately was taken by it, so much that he wanted him to direct because of his bold, strong art direction and aesthetic.
0: There was so much style behind the other two things that, that I had seen, Vincent and Frankenweenie. I mean, that was, that was immediately when I, I had seen, actually, I, I had seen Vincent, I believe on television. Um, I don't know where I saw it, but I had seen it, but I didn't connect you to it. I didn't realize that was your film when I saw Frank and Weenie. And when I saw Frank and Weenie, in the first like few seconds of it, I went, you know, you know, there, there's style involved in this and art direction. And I was looking, you know, the the common theory, I think it still exists actually, is that if you're doing comedy, you don't need art direction. And, or um, stereo, or other you know, things that they yeah. said. no, and, and, you don't And need that. I was so <laughs> interested in someone who was really interested in art direction and, and you know, in, in bringing some sort of style to it. And, and I, I mean, not some sort of style, a lot of style, high style.
2: Meanwhile, Paul Rubens was also interested in Danny Elfman, whose music he had heard when watching that cult film that I mentioned earlier, The Forbidden Zone. At the same time, Tim Burton was also interested in Elfman because Burton liked his work with Oingo Boingo, so both had come into play. But man, a lot was happening for Danny Elfman and Oingo Boingo in 1985. Filmmaker John Hughes had asked Elfman to write a song for his current project, Weird Science. Elfman apparently wrote the song in his head on the car ride home after the meeting, and the song was released with the film later that August, as well as being released on Boingo's album... Dead man's party that October From
1: my heart
0: and from my hand
1: why don't people understand my intention <laughs> We're science Elastic tubes and pots and pans bits and pieces and the magic from my hand will make it weird science Seen before, behind bolted doors. Then an, an imagination with science, not what teachers said to do. Making dreams come true, living tissue, warm flesh. With science, old oh, plastic tubes and pots and pans, bits and pieces, bits and. Pieces.
2: That song went on to be a huge hit for Oingo Boingo and is one of the first major film credits of Elfman's career. So, around that same time, when Tim Burton asked to speak with Elfman about music for a movie, Elfman just assumed that it was for writing a song. When he was asked instead about scoring the film, he was apparently shocked. Paul Rubens
1: knew my work through the Mystic Nights because I did a a late-night cult movie although it wasn't for an orchestra it was with uh, about 11 players and uh, that was called The Forbidden Zone and uh, Tim Burton I think knew my work through the band Oingo Boingo years later and so they called me in for a meeting and I had no idea why and I think I did a pretty good job I thought of trying to unsell myself I thought they were kind of crazy for trying to hire me um, but they persisted <laughs> and uh, in short I ended up going home and doing a demo of an idea. I didn't know what it meant or why. I didn't think too much of it, sent it off. And that demo ended up becoming later recorded as the main titles to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. you got to realize I was terrified when I started this movie. I was really convinced that I was going to destroy their movie. And uh, I finally had, after many sleepless nights, I decided, what the hell, (laughs) if they're willing to take the chance. I will go ahead and destroy their movie with my music.
2: Man, it's wild to hear such a successful film composer speak so candidly about his self-doubt. It just goes to show how easy it is to take these kinds of creative projects for granted as an audience member. Anyway, he goes on to describe what it was like getting back up to speed and learning how to score a movie. I am
1: completely self-taught. I never had any musical training at all. Funny that I went to Cal Arts as a non-student around the same time that Paul Rubens and Tim Burton were there, but we never met. And uh, since I never paid tuition, <laughs> I think I was kind of hiding out down in the, the ethnic music department. But in the Mystic Night days, I taught myself to write because we started doing these very elaborate pieces. And my uh, my great triumph was my Oingo Boingo Piano Concerto Number One and a Half. And uh, after that, the, the the theater group disbanded, and. Um, I didn't write again for six years or something like that. And suddenly I get this movie. And at the point when I left the Mystic Nights, my writing, I was able to communicate what I wanted, but it was far from slick composition. And uh, I had to retrain myself from scratch. The first week was a real stay-up-all-night-sweating kind of a thing because I had to go back and tell myself, I used to do this, I used to do this, I can do it again, I could do it again. And, uh... It was really scary until finally I started remembering, oh yeah, 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 that's how it works. And um, like I said, thank God it was such a simple score because um, it enabled me to find my footing again and get back to where I was six years previously when I was able to get music down on paper.
2: What he ended up producing, however, was a score that was so intriguing, so fresh, that I remember it sticking in my head even as a kid. When I was a kid, I'd never heard music like that before. and when It was combined with Tim Burton's art direction and the comedy and writing of Paul Rubens. What you ended up having is this zany, off-kilter, and ironic comedy. Like, on the surface, it feels like a kid's movie, but it's actually both a kid's movie and a strange satire of a kid's movie, with adult gags running through it. Let's go ahead and listen to the main theme of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which all stemmed from a four-track demo. This is the cue that started Danny Elfman's film career. other incredible cues from Pee Wee's Big Adventure, such as this cue, Elfman's favorite, called The Breakfast Machine. This really takes inspiration from a 1937 tune by Raymond Scott called Powerhouse. Piece of music was famously used by Carl Stalling, the composer for the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons for Warner Brothers. first heard it. I'm sure Elfman was the same way. In the 2000 DVD commentary for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Elfman even mentions Carl Stalling right here. I think
1: in retrospect, the really cool thing about having this as my first score was really learning how to uh, do timings in a comedy like this you have to catch so much. And um, it made me really appreciate Carl Stalling (laughs) and how he did what he did. Um, But by the time I was done with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I felt like I really had it nailed that I was able to catch just about anything. Um, Of course, in the beginning, it was absolutely terrifying. And um, and by the end, I felt like, yeah, lay it on me. (laughs) Later
2: in the movie, when Pee-wee's bicycle is stolen, you can hear Danny Elfman channel the work of Bernard Herrmann in this all-string cue, very reminiscent of Psycho. And even later, you can even hear him quote Miss Gulch's theme or the Wicked Witch of the West theme written by Herbert Stoddart for The Wizard of Oz when Pee-wee is riding his bike trying to escape the Warner Brothers lot. What you have here is Elfman bringing all of his love of film music to bear on Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And while there are a lot of different influences that I just cited, there is one musical through-line to this entire score that is uniquely Elfman. This almost mm, cabaret, circus-inspired music that drives the absurdity of Burton's whole film. One possible explanation for this cabaret, circus type of music is that it is inspired by the music of Italian composer Nino Rota, who, besides famously writing music for Romeo and Juliet and the Godfather movies, is closely associated with Italian director Federico Fellini and his comedies from the 1960s, such as La Dolce Vita or Eight and a Half.
1: Rhoda was who popped into my head when I first saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure as a, my inspiration because I think the first sight of him on the bicycle made me think of him not as an American uh, character but as some kind of uh, otherworldly or it almost reminded me of a crazy European film and I wanted to give it that slant which is another reason why I thought that my concept of where I would take the music in that direction would never go never fly with the studio and with Tim and
2: Paul but it did Tim Burton has this art direction that is part German expressionism. By the way, there's a great film from 1920 called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which if you look at the sets, they're these weird, twisted, expressionist, painted sets that look st- like they're straight out of Beetlejuice or like a nightmare sequence from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's part that expressionism. It's part Roald Dahl and those illustrations and part Shell Silverstein. It's gothic horror. But it's always somewhat detached, in that it isn't truly scary. It's got this ironic distance to it. And Elfman's music? It comes across like this gothic cabaret, like the music of the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo playing at gothic horror. I think that Elfman's background in the circus, his time in Africa, and of course his many years as the musical director and performer in the Mystic Knights shines through in these early Tim Burton films. If you, like, take that pod that I was playing earlier, like kind of like in Kurt Weill's music, or old cabaret music, and you darken it a bit for a gothic twist, like instead of going down to this fifth, what if I went down to the tritone? This is like classic Elfman here. Or maybe darken it a little bit more, you know, so it's something like... I mean, that's not a piece of Elfman's, but it's very in that vein, that, that style. And then if you were to orchestrate that with a full orchestra, you end up with a sound that is so unique and, in my opinion, is the crucial ingredient to Tim Burton's films. It's music that sounds like Tim Burton because they both speak the same language. It manifests itself in that style based purely on Elfman's Mystic Knights upbringing and the type of music that they played and Burton and Elfman's common ground together was a healthy dose of joy that they derived from their shared love of the camp in old horror and science fiction films.
1: I think that one of the reasons uh, Tim and I hit it off was uh, because we grew up on so many of the same films. There was a common thread, a common language. Although we've never really talked that much about it, it just always seems to be there. I seem to understand what he's talking about through the dialogue of these films that we both grew up on his idol was vincent price mine was peter laurie the hammer films the corman films the melodrama the horror um we both just loved that stuff uh, i couldn't get enough of it
2: again the camp providing a sense of detached irony by the way fun side story much of peewee's big adventure was filmed on the warner brothers lot and while they were shooting their film the Goonies had their pirate ship lagoon up and running on stage 16, right next door.
0: I remember when we were shooting some of this, they were shooting the Goonies next door to us, and it was oh, yeah. a very close <laughs> set. And I was one of the only people who got to go. I had, like, carte blanche to go yeah. in anytime I wanted, because all the kids were PD yeah, fans. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was like a big star on the Goonies set. It was really fun. That's, I remember, that, that was like the biggest state, set in the, they had that whole big stage 16, I think. Uh, with the lagoon yeah. and the waterfalls and yeah.
2: everything. Weird Science was released in the U.S. on August 2nd, 1985. A week later, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was widely released in theaters on August 9th, 1985. A small metaphor for how film scoring was going to follow Elfman's career as a rock star. Elfman scored films with other directors quickly after Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But a few short years later, in 1988... The film that Burton and Elfman would do next would forever crystallize their style together as collaborators when they conjured a certain bio-exorcist up onto the silver screen. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show.
1: My inspiration for this whole thing started about 11. I lived around the block from a, a movie theater in Baldwin Hills, California. It was called the Baldwin Hills Theater. And by my recollection, I spent about every weekend of my life there. I would sneak in the theater over and over again, and I would see movies five, six, seven times. And uh, I became a fan of film and film music as a teenager. I used to go two, three nights a week whenever I could get away to these repertory houses. And uh, they'd play a different double bill every night of the week for a dollar a night. And... uh, That was my continuing education because then I learned about uh, Polanski and Fellini and uh, all my other favorites and uh, rediscovered Bernard Herrmann through Hitchcock's earlier movies, which I didn't see as a kid, and realized, of course, that that same name that I used to love seeing on the screen when I was a kid meant so much more and that there was uh, many other sides to him, and he became the model of the perfect composer, because I felt like he could do anything.
2: He could do drama. He could do romance. He could do quirky comedy. He could play it light. He could play it heavy. It should be said, for the record, that Danny Elfman is more than just his collaboration with Tim Burton. While this is a very famous collaboration, he has more than proven himself able to do other diverse film scores, even back in the 1980s. Elfman was immediately off and running after Pee-wee's Big Adventure. In 1986... When Oingo Boingo was asked to participate in Rodney Dangerfield's comedy, Back to School, Elfman gladly accepted. And they can be seen in a party scene in Dangerfield's dorm room, playing their then current hit, Dead Man's Party. But part of the deal for Elfman to do Back to School also included him penning the film score, which Elfman did brilliantly. Other projects came his way, including Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Amazing Stories, Summer School, starring Mark Harmon, and more. But in 1988, Tim Burton returned with the film that really solidified his artistic direction, and Elfman's as well. The film is Beetlejuice, starring Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, and Michael Keaton. I want to play the opening musical sequence of Beetlejuice. And let's notice how much Elfman's writing and his Tim Burton musical style had matured in just three short years. I'm just blown away by this in retrospect. Here we have what I like to coin as a fully realized Doompah. And it captures the wackiness that is present in Michael Keaton's performance, the gloomy nature of the story, but also the tongue-in-cheek camp that is present in the horror. It's amazing how much tone is being so accurately and clearly expressed on screen. Even as a kid, I immediately got it. It's spooky, but it's also kind of funny in a detached sort of way. Beetlejuice is remarkable in that you have two creatives speaking the same language in their separate disciplines, and it forever solidified one of the most important and long-lasting collaborations in movie history. And Danny Elfman was just getting started. What he and Tim Burton did next would forever leave a wonderfully creative mark on popular culture. Thank you so much for all your comments on social media and, of course, your emails. I read every single one. Please drop us a line at soundtrackshowpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundtrackShowHSW or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.